Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bound, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is an update on the US-China trade wars. They are not going well. And as we record this on Saturday, May 11th, there are now tariffs of 25% on around $250 billion of U.S. imports coming in from China. And so since one week ago, there's been an escalation of 15 percentage points on $200 billion of those imports. Another escalation, which would effectively cover all other imports from China to the U.S., is that that's in the works. I am the tariff man. Yes, he is. Let's start this by going back to Sunday, May 5th, 2019. This is around noon Eastern time. Both of us are are pretty tired. Team Trade Talks had just finished running a marathon. Well, I mean, technically we ran half a marathon each, but but yeah, sure, a full marathon. (laughs) Okay, then this happened. For 10 months, China has been paying tariffs to the USA of 25% on $50 billion of high-tech and 10% on $200 billion of other goods. These payments are partially responsible for our great economic results. The 10% will go up to 25% on Friday. $325 billion of additional goods sent to us by China remain untaxed, but will be shortly at a rate of 25%. The tariffs paid to the USA have had little impact on product cost, mostly borne by China. The trade deal with China continues, but too slowly, as they attempt to renegotiate. No. So there are, there are two main responses to this. First of all, there were some inaccuracies in the tweet, like like the idea that the tariffs are partially responsible for the US economy's great economic results. That is that is incorrect. But the second and I think bigger, bigger response to this was, what? <laughs> I thought we were actually supposed to have a deal this week. I thought we were going to get some 150-page document describing a great new trade agreement between the United States and China. I thought Trade Talks was going to have a a, a substantive thing to be able to analyze. The week was still young. This was Sunday. Chinese negotiators were due in D.C. on Wednesday. So, you know, I saw this tweet and in my tired state thought, well, maybe there's still time to do a deal. And the Chinese negotiators did end up coming to Washington Though it's important to point out, there weren't as many of them showing up as was originally planned. And the chief negotiator, Liu He, he did arrive later than originally scheduled. He showed up on Thursday and and not the Wednesday. Looking at at Liu He's travel plans a bit more closely, things weren't looking great. Uh, He was only in town for dinner on Thursday, so it wasn't after a full day of talks with him. And it, and it looks like the dinner didn't go as well as it could have. On Thursday night or early Friday morning at, at a minute past midnight, when the Chinese were still supposed to be in town for another day of talks, those tariffs went up. Tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese imports rose from 10% to 25%. And then on the Friday, the Chinese and the Americans, they, they did have another day of talks, but then the Chinese left and there was still no deal. There are a few obvious questions here. That the first most obvious one being why? Why did we get this this escalation? Especially because leading up to President Trump's tweets on that Sunday, all of the noise had been suggesting that there was actually going to be a deal. 
There was reporting about some concessions that the Americans were actually making to the Chinese on biologics or these new pharmaceutical products, for example. It sounded like the deal was close to getting to its final stages. Now, the obvious explanation was that these tweets were just a threat. They were designed to freak out the Chinese and and squeeze just a couple more concessions from them. But when it came down to it, at some point on Thursday or Friday, the Americans would say, yeah, fine, we just want a deal. Let's let's sign on the dotted line and go home. We do now have quite a few pieces of evidence, though, that this wasn't just a bluff. The main one, of course, being the fact that we now have much higher tariffs. And over the last couple of weeks, some of the amazing journalists out there, they've been gathering even more information on why it is that these talks may have potentially broken down. Jenny Leonard from Bloomberg uh, told us all about how things seem to be going fine. And then the Chinese basically backtracked on commitments that they had previously made. That had made the Americans very frustrated. David Lauder from from Reuters found out about this 150-page document that the deal had been written into and, and how on Friday, May 3rd, the Chinese had sent back a version of this working deal with a few too many changes for the American side's liking. The story that the Trump administration wanted to get out at this stage was clearly that the Chinese couldn't be trusted. They couldn't be trusted to stick to their commitments even within these negotiations. And the Chinese were were screwing around with the Americans, assuming that President Trump wanted a deal so desperately that he would, in the end, just end up folding. One of the reports that came out for why the talks collapsed came from Ling Ling Wei of the Wall Street Journal. And, And essentially the story was that the Chinese got a bit too confident. Their economy had been stabilizing, their Belt and Road Initiative, this big foreign policy, seemed to be being relatively well received by some countries. Here's Ling Ling. They also interpreted some statements made by President Trump as a sign that the U.S. economy is really weaker than it is. As we reported last week, a tweet by Ms. Trump at the end of April especially caught the eyes of Chinese leaders. Uh, As the tweet says, China is adding great stimulus to its economy while at the same time keeping interest rate low. And... Ms. Trump said at the same time, oh, our Federal Reserve has incessantly lifted interest rates. So in the view of Chinese leadership, that's a sign that the U.S. resolve was weakening and the U.S. would be more willing to cut a deal, even if Beijing hardened its positions. So there's definitely an element of miscalculation here. But if China misread the signals and vice versa, it wouldn't be the first time. The history of U.S.-China trade negotiations is filled with misunderstandings. Because these two countries have very different political economic systems, and they have been traditionally struggling to figure out each other's intentions. So according to this story too, the Chinese got cocky. They thought the US was desperate for a deal, and then they overplayed their hand. We probably do need to introduce a few caveats here. This is obviously a very opaque process, what's going on here with the two sides. We don't actually know that they were ever really close to a deal. We don't know for sure that there was this 150-page document, that there was any reneging on 
the Chinese side or if it was just communication. We're not calling into question any of the reporting. It's just that all of this is a lot of he said, he said by the Americans and the Chinese. We also don't really know whether there might be more to this story than the U.S. itself was letting on. And how big are these underlying differences between the two sides? There's this big question out there of, of China having to rewrite a lot of its laws that the Americans were asking for. Is this really such a big deal? There's a story that's just come out from Reuters, including Liu He saying that changes in the deal are quite quite common before the very end. So so clearly the Chinese interpretation is not that they somehow you know reneged on the on their previous promises. Now, the alternative version of this story that essentially the Chinese stabbed the Americans in the back at the 11th hour and the Americans walked away is that essentially all of this is a response to pressure building for a more hawkish version of the deal. So, you know, the China hawks in the Trump administration arguably never wanted the sort of really quick deal that would happen under the kind of time pressure that that President Donald Trump had effectively imposed on them with his meeting with Xi Jinping in in Argentina. And so, so perhaps they leapt on this opportunity to accuse the Chinese of negotiating in bad faith, tilting the talks in the direction they had wanted all along, which was a much tougher line, uh, trying to get much bigger concessions from the Chinese. If that's what happened, they really had some some help here. As the talks were seemingly drawing to a close, and it looked like we were having a deal, in the two weeks leading up to that, there was actually the beginnings of some serious pushback. So you had both coming out of the labor unions and the American business community, big concerns that this potential deal wasn't going to do much at all about China's subsidies, that there weren't going to be commitments there. And even the part of the business community that is engaged with China that really wanted a deal became very concerned that this deal that President Trump was negotiating wasn't necessarily going to lead to a lifting of the tariffs on the $360 billion worth of trade between the United States and China that had become subject to tariffs in 2018. So I think the point is that even the dubs were helping along Lighthizer et al. Because, you know, the idea was, well, if we're not even going to get a strong deal dealing with all this other stuff, then then really you're not going to lift the tariffs. <laughs> anyway, it's clear that if this strategy was designed to get more concessions from the Chinese, it didn't work in the short run. It was reported that the two days of negotiations happened without the Chinese making any major concessions. Here's Ling Ling on her understanding of the remaining differences between the two sides. As we understand it, there are two major sticking points during the negotiations. One is the U.S. request that China details a list of laws it needs to change in order to ensure compliance of the of the deal they're negotiating. The Chinese side is really pushing back at that request, saying that would be violation of China's sovereign rights. And the other issue, obviously, is how to roll back the existing tariffs. Uh, the Chinese side wants all the tariffs to be rolled back immediately after both sides reach a deal. And the U.S. side is insisting that the tariffs are uh, kept on for at least six months after both sides signing a deal. So those are two major sticking points here. The differences, I would say, still quite big. And at this point, as some Chinese officials are telling me, it really uh, would take 
those leaders to break the deadlock and to come to some sort of、uh, solution. Reuters has also been reporting that Liu He says the differences are one, this tariffs issue that that Lingling just mentioned, two, the issue of procurement, as some disagreement about the overall amounts that the Chinese are supposed to buy, and three, the Chinese are concerned about balance. They want a balanced agreement, and they worry that at the moment it's too imbalanced in favor of the Americans. In late Friday night. Chinese Vice Premier Liu He also did say that China and the United States have agreed to hold more talks in Beijing, so it looks like the negotiations will continue. It's also been reported that the Americans have given the Chinese basically a month to come up with something, or else they're going to be hit with this next round of twenty-five percent tariffs. So this would be new tariffs on the three hundred billion dollars or so of, of U.S. imports from China that haven't yet been hit by any of the United States tariffs. And that month, that deadline seems about right, given the U.S. Trade Representative said late on Friday, May 10th, that it was going to start the process of issuing one of these Federal Register notices that's going to require a couple weeks of comments, hearings before they can actually impose the tariffs. So that's some pontificating on what happened here, and and let's talk about what this all means in in the short term. Tariffs. Probably. Technically, tariffs went up from ten percent to twenty five percent on on Thursday night, but but tariffs only apply to goods exported on or after May tenth, that Friday. So so something that was already on the water still gets the ten percent tariff, and it, and it was pointed out to us that this puts importers in a nightmarish situation. There's huge uncertainty. If you import stuff now, you could face a twenty five percent tariff. Or you could face a zero percent tariff if they end up doing a deal. So there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty, and obviously we've we've talked about a lot of that already. Let's talk about some of the other economic impacts that we're likely to see. We discussed in episode seventy-seven some of this new academic research that's looked at exactly what's been happening as a result of the existing tariffs that went on in twenty eighteen, at least up until the end of twenty eighteen. And so it could be that it's just at least initially more of the same. And if so, what these new tariffs will mean is that importers are going to have to pay more, or possibly they could start to source from other places, start to buy what they would have been buying from China from other countries. But the evidence so far coming out of these studies is actually fairly surprising. The evidence is that American importers so far are the ones who are basically paying all of the cost of these tariffs. It could be that the American importers just haven't had time to renegotiate the contracts, given the the suddenness with which all of this took place last year. But so far, the burden is really being borne by the Americans. Now, obviously, Chinese exports to to the U.S. of the affected goods have fallen, so it's not like they're not being hurt at all. It's just the cost of the tariff on the goods that are still flowing that seems to be being paid by the Americans. It is possible that going forward, the American importers may end up paying less than the full price of this tariff. These academic studies looked at quite short-term impacts of the of the two hundred billion dollars、uh, bucket of tariffs. They only had a, a couple months of data on that tranche. Could be that over time, the importers manage to renegotiate their contracts and pass on this this cost to the Chinese exporters. 
it could have been that the the you know they were they were having to pay so much back at the end of last year because they were desperate to try and get products into the country before the tariffs went up from ten percent to twenty five percent. Remember back then there was this expectation that tariffs would rise to twenty five percent on January first. And then there's the second question about what ultimately all this means for consumer prices. And there was a recent study that looked into the effects of President Trump's tariffs on washing machines, what happened there in terms of consumer prices. And that study found essentially that the tariffs, not surprisingly, had had raised them. So when you or I go to a store, the price that we see for washing machines is now much higher than it was before. And that's what you'd expect. But that tariff was on all washing machines. And it's also a consumer product. So just to confirm, we don't know that the companies that have been buying these intermediate imports affected by Chinese tariffs have been passing on the higher costs to consumers. Those earlier two studies that found that Americans were paying the cost of the tariffs, those are really companies based in America that they found were were paying the cost of the tariff. They were only looking at the prices at the border. Most of that was American companies paying more for equipment and, and parts. And it's possible that so far, companies operating in America have been paying for these tariffs from their profit margins, not passing the costs on to consumers so much. But with the tariff escalation of of May 10th, these new tariffs, that just seems less likely. Part of that is because a 25% tariff is, is just much bigger than 10%. And this next tranche, if the tariffs expand to cover all of these other imports coming in from China, then that's going to include a lot more consumer goods. That tranche is finally going to hit clothing and electronics and toys and the iPhone. And in that case, the consumers are going to find it really hard to escape the effects of these tariffs. We should mention another policy that that recently popped up on Donald Trump's Twitter feed. With the over $100 billion in tariffs that we take in, we will buy agricultural products from our great farmers in larger amounts than China ever did, and ship it to poor and starving countries in the form of humanitarian assistance. It sounds like the US government is going to buy up the agricultural exports that were supposed to go to China, but now aren't because presumably the Chinese are going to retaliate, and they're going to send those exports to poor countries. This new policy proposal is is probably really bad economic policy and for a number of reasons. First, this is basically a subsidy, and it would be a pretty expensive one. This is the U.S. government promising to buy tens of billions of dollars a year from farmers, and it would effectively encourage them to produce too much relative to what world markets want from them right now. Second, while this policy sounds good on Twitter, it sounds like you're doing something helpful for poor countries. This type of policy can turn out to be really bad for the poor countries themselves. It could have lots of unintended consequences. If a, if a country is suffering famine, it needs food right now. The right thing to do is to give them actually cash and to, and to let them buy the food that's now available and it's available as close as possible out there somewhere on the world market. To expect starving people in, say, Yemen to wait potentially for months for soybeans or, or corn that's sitting in a silo in Iowa right now to take its time to make its way to them it's just not going to work. And also the, the products themselves aren't necessarily a, a great fit. The main American crop that's, that's losing out because of this Chinese retaliation is uncrushed soybeans. And that's primarily used to feed livestock, so to feed pigs and, and cows. 
that's not necessarily the right crop for people that are starving somewhere that may be reliant on rice or lentils as their main staple. And finally, and, and not that President Trump cares about this, but this sort of policy would break just a ton of WTO rules and commitments that the United States has made to limit its agricultural subsidies. Now, this is not to say that American farmers aren't going to continue to suffer from President Trump's policies. I think we can expect that China is likely to stop buying those American soybeans that it had been repurchasing over the last couple of months. And so things may get worse for them. It's just to say that this isn't the way to help American farmers. This kind of policy could actually introduce even more problems out there. But obviously, a lot of this is about politics, and U.S. politics matters here, and, and farmers are an important group for President Trump and a lot of his allies in Congress. And so his administration is going to need to do something to help them out, to help them weather this mess that they're currently facing. Pushing politics aside, let's put these new U.S. tariffs into historical perspective. So remember episode 46 with Doug Irwin, where we compared these these trade wars to past episodes of, of trade tension. Chad, have you got any new numbers for us? Not surprisingly, I do. And so I went out and, and ran some new numbers uh, in light of this week's events. And so before all these tariffs that President Trump imposed in 2018, the average U.S. tariff on imports coming in from China was about 3%. They were, it was really pretty low. But with all the tariffs of 2018, so the washing machines, the solar panels, uh, the steel, aluminum, the $250 billion, that average suddenly jumped up to 12%. But on Friday of, of this week, on, on May 10th, that 12% suddenly increased again. And now all of a sudden, it's up to 18%. That is a lot of numbers, Chad. I know. I'm almost done here. But the point is, if, if President Trump actually follows through with this next threat, the 25% tariffs on the rest of imports coming in from China, all of a sudden that 18% average tariff would go up to about 29%. And so for historical context, I computed one other number. And that's what the U.S. tariffs from China would be if China actually weren't a member of the World Trade Organization. And so these are the column two tariffs in the U.S. tariff schedule. Think of these as the ones that the United States was imposing as a result of the Smoot-Hawley tariff of, of the 1930s. This was back before we had the WTO, before we had the, the general agreement on tariffs and trade even. And so if China weren't in the WTO, it would face a, an average tariff of about 38%. So if President Trump follows through with his last round of 25% tariffs on all imports from China, he will have pushed China almost all the way back to facing levels of US tariffs last applied in the 1930s and as if China wasn't a member of the World Trade Organization. And of course, you might think that these tariffs are worse because what's going on here is that the Chinese are getting massively discriminated against. Back then, at least the U.S. was applying these tariffs to everyone. Now, the U.S. tariffs on everyone else are much lower, even with the, the, the tariffs of 2018. So China's looking quite different to, to other countries around the world. Exactly. That, that's the big history lesson for today. So I, I'm kind of running out of hot takes on what, what all of this means going forward for, for you know, the long term of, of what a deal contains. I think there are three possible takes. Uh, you know, one is that this whole thing has been a debacle. The US needs to work together within the rules-based system with like-minded countries to come up with some more, more constructive approach. The second take is that 
these tariffs are painful, but all you critics of, of the president, you never came up with anything else. So any deal that, that Lighthizer agrees with all of this short-term pain, that's the best that it can get under the circumstances. And then the final take, I suppose, is, is perhaps the one that the president shares, which is that, that tariffs are great. Um, and some of the mega hawks think in his administration that that decoupling these two countries, separating out the US and China is a good idea. Uh, and, and you know, so even if you don't get a deal, then at least you've convinced a few business people not to operate so much of their business in China. My main takeaway from all of this is just to hope that it's that it's not over, that that this isn't the end and that we are still very much in the middle of this process. I do think it's probably getting harder with every round of tariffs that, that go up. It's more and more difficult for the two sides to back off politically. And so I think this is a potential inflection point where things could possibly get worse. But I am still hopeful. I, I do hope that someday we get a solution out of this, a, a sustainable solution. It may not be with President Trump. It may be, as you said, that President Trump just wants more tariffs and that it's going to take somebody else to be able to negotiate constructively with China to resolve all of these issues that the two sides have together. But I'm hoping that at some point, that's actually where we're going to end up after all of this. On that note, we should finish. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Ling Ling Wei of the Wall Street Journal in Beijing, Jenny Lennon of Bloomberg, and Dave Lauder of Reuters here in Washington, and all of the other amazing trade reporters who worked so hard this week. And for their revival of the USTR Winder Building Stakeout, waiting for Liu He. It was just like the hot days of August with the NAFTA talks. Ah, good times. I'd also like to thank my colleague Ava Zhang here at Peterson for helping me to run the tariff numbers, and we'll tweet those out. Thanks also to Lynn Fisher-Fox and some of our trade lawyer friends for helping us interpret the Trump administration's Federal Register notification and the importance of the word and. And thanks also to Colin Warren, who normally takes care of our audio, that we did make the mistake of giving Colin this week off. So if the audio quality sounds a little worse this time, that's not his fault. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. And that's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to talking with the Wall Street Journal's Ling Ling Wei from Beijing, doing it twice was better than once. Once again, here's Ling Ling. Well, it is hard. Unlike the U.S., the Chinese system is steeped in secrecy. In fact, the Communist Party thrives on secrecy. So the officials here are really not used to dealing with the media, let alone foreign media outlets like us. But we are the Wall Street Journal. We always try our best. And I'd like to use this opportunity to thank all those who take enormous risks to share information with us. If you are ever listening, Thank you.